Hi, my name is Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. Let's do this. Recording is in progress. Doesn't that I got it. So easy. Okay, we're, we're going to talk about, this will be the last bit for uh, reviewing Desert or Paradise, the page-by-page review. Um, and since this is also the Permaculture Smackdown, uh, as we were getting ready to start the recording, uh, a couple of quick things came up. So um, one of them is, is that one of the people that we have on the call today is uh, Dr. Julia. And uh, Hello. you have a rocket oven. I have the world's most beautiful rocket oven. <laughs> okay. All right. I'll, I'll let you have it. <laughs> Even though I heard a rumor that the mosaics uh-huh. on it were not quite yet done. The If you look at it from the front, it is the world's most beautiful rocket oven. <laughs> <laughs> I see. I see. Qualifies. But if you move to one or the other side, you say, what's with all the plywood? <laughs> oh man, you use plywood, really? There is plywood. Yep, uh, it's a box. I know it's so funny because I came up with this idea that I will encase the rocket oven with mosaic because I thought of mosaic as a heat resistant art form. But then <laughs> as it turned out, once the actual crafty people who know how to build stuff started building, they, they just built a little house around, you know, cause your rocket oven, Completely functional, but it's, it's like a steel barrel wrapped in insulation and then, and then wrapped in like what corrugated, corrugated yeah. roofing material. Yeah. It's not attractive. It's not. And I wanted it, it wanted to look better. So I said I'll, I'll put mosaic, but yeah, it ended up that they basically built a tiny shed, like a really tiny shed with a big roof and it sits in that. But now so you can't see the barrel. You have a question for me. I do. I have a question for you because inside the the oven, the the white oven, right? Because it's a barrel within a barrel, and no smoke touches the food. Right. Um, at the very bottom, it's filling up with these. There's all these flakes of metal, and I'm concerned that that means eventually I'm going to have a hole. Right. Kind of, kind of looks like Kellogg's steel chips. Kind of a great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 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 Get a, get a handful of those, put them in a bowl, put some milk on them. Mm, yeah. Iron. Robot. But, robot delicacy. Yeah. <laughs> Purina robot chow. Uh, so, um, the, I, I know exactly what it is. And that is that, um, <clears throat> as, I mean, first of all, the bottom of that, that, that spot right there, the, you know, the spot that, uh, that gravity says all debris must come to here. Mm-hmm. So it's the lowest point inside where you put your pizzas. Uh, that's also the spot where the heat from your J tube hits, right? Right. The heat riser dumps fire right there. Right. So that's the hottest point in that barrel 
um, and uh, and that whole contraption. And so it's like, okay, it's the hottest, hottest point. And then um, on top of that, uh, there are going to be as you're as you're using this oven because I believe if I remember correctly, you use it a lot because yeah, it's fun. It's actually yeah. faster than using a conventional oven to make pizza. Um, Definitely. Well, yeah, I mean, we get it to 600 degrees. So you run it hotter yeah. than a conventional oven will get to. Yeah. Yeah. And in a way, 700. Yeah. The, the, then you've got little bits of, of pizza and whatever else you're cooking in there that will sometimes occasionally escape. And now yeah. a person might think to themselves, oh no. Now I have to clean this. But as luck should have it, when when you've got like a self-cleaning oven, all it is is it's an oven that seals itself off and then takes the temperature inside up to 900 degrees. But oh. when but when you're using the oven, it won't allow itself to get any hotter than 550 degrees. But now when you're running it, you're probably getting it to 600 to 800 degrees somewhere in there a lot of the times, which is getting pretty close to that self-cleaning oven space. So then the stuff that you see down there is probably something resembling ash and charcoal mixed in with that Purina robot chow. Is that With the flakes. Yeah. 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 There's flakes of a couple different colors and some black gnarly bits. Yeah. Yeah. So you got the heat hitting that steel from below, and then you've got this little thin layer of insulation on top of that. And now the steel is not melting because in order for steel to melt, it has to get 2,800 degrees, and you're probably not coming around close to 2,800 degrees. But steel will spall at 1,600 degrees, and you're probably hitting that pretty easy. Yeah. so what you're seeing is is um, how it's because the difference between iron. Normally, you want to do a cast iron stove, mm-hmm. and the reason is is because the iron will not spall, but the steel will. And the difference oh. between the iron and the steel is the carbon in the steel. So iron right. plus carbon, you can make steel usually in fancy layers. And then, and now it's, um, spalling is like you're unraveling those layers. It's oh, I get it. So like in those beautiful knives that have the lines, that's um, the layers? <laughs> yeah. Let's say it's just like that, only completely different. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So, but anyway, the, the key is, is that, um, it's, it's spalling and you need to cool it. And so the way that you're going to cool it, is you're gonna clean all that shit out of it. Get it to be nice okay. and clean and keep it, keep it clean, keep it dusted out. And then that way, it'll, the heat will transfer more efficiently and thus warm up a little bit faster. But more mm-hmm. importantly, you'll stop it from spalling. And that'll keep it from, okay. so if it can, if it could transfer heat into the oven faster, that'll help it to cool. Which will help it, which will help it to not, to keep it below the spalling temperature. So should I like get a, like a, one of those steel, 
brushes that you clean a grill with and scrub it, or is or am I doing more damage with that? I'd say don't scrub it. I'd say uh like getting one of those wire brushes, steel brush like you're talking about, to kind of clean it out. Like like don't spend more than a minute cleaning it out. You know, get get the the uh previous bits of pizza out of there. Uh, mm-hmm. get, get the small, the spall chips out of there. If there's any loose bits of spall, take those out too. So get, get that stuff out of there and maybe keep that brush right there so you can kind of brush it out just before starting it each time. Yeah. 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 Now. It's hard, it's hard to brush it out because it, it, the door opens there. And so. Well, then do it. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to like sweep it out or use a vacuum or something like that. Sure, sure, if you wanna. Yeah, it's fine. However you wanna go about it. Yeah, but clean it out. I'm I'm making it worse by having a mess in there. That is true. Yeah, Yeah. story of my life. But the good news is it's kind of a self-cleaning oven. But when you run the self-cleaning oven and it leaves a bunch of ash in there, don't you go and kind of brush out the ash? Yeah, you have to go and get that stuff. Yeah. 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 So, you know, a little, a little bit. I'll try to post these pictures, um, maybe in my thread that I already have about decorating this oven. Okay. Right. That's cool. All right. Thank you. you. And then you had a suggestion about a a rocket oven building biz. Yes, because I think that this oven I have is gorgeous. And I do think that there is significant money to be made by somebody who learns how to make these and markets it to the 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 wealthy the wealthy who want to have a cool thing because there's all these cob ovens in Portland and I don't think anybody uses them because there's too much work. Oh yeah. You see them as you drive by. You see that somebody has built a little shelter and there's this really cute oven and it's got some smoke stains over the 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 front door. Yeah. But I just, I'm very skeptical that it's being used more than once or twice a year. Yeah. Yeah. This can be used. I mean, you literally can have a pizza party on Friday before it gets dark. Cause yeah. it, it takes like half an hour to get the, if you've got really good tiny kindling, it gets hot in 20 minutes. And I mean, very hot. Like I, I haven't made the pizzas in time, you know? So now I, I think it would be fun for you to, um, measure how long it takes to get to 350 degrees. And yeah. uh, the reason why I'm I'm suggesting this is because Erica Wisner holds the record at seven and a half minutes. Oh, damn. <laughs> She's good. Yeah. 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 I, I just kind of feel like that's, that's, an, that's an exciting record. And I kind of feel like it should be pretty easy to beat. And, uh, and it's kind of like, so it's, it's low hanging fruit. You could be the champion. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know. She's really good with fire. And we did. We, I, I filmed her at your place making yeah. pizza, and, and we we showed like how little wood it took to to make the to yeah. make the hot pizzas. I, and you've never used a, a cob oven before, I take it. No, right. I haven't used a cob oven. But my impression is it takes hours. Yeah, to get it, it hot enough. It does, and a lot of wood. It's a lot yeah. of wood and a lot of hours. You're, and like, you're right. People just love those things. And then once they have them, they use them twice and then it just collects dust forevermore. Yeah. Um, and then I have this and it's right off my deck and it's just a lovely thing. 
And, you know, eventually my, my, my family was actually like, mom, we're tired of all the pizza. But, um, I've also used it to roast apples and I've used it to, you know, it's, it's not hard to keep it at 350. You just use bigger pieces of wood. Lasagna, pie, (laughs) bread, um, cinnamon rolls, uh, all the different kinds of breads you can do. Um, Oh my goodness. I mean, the amount of stuff that you can make is just profound and amazing and awesome. It's not just, it's not just for pizza anymore. Yeah. Well, and it's a, it's a way to cook outside during fire season because there is no way for a live ember to leave the oven. It does seem like there's a lot of people that would be just tickled pink to slap down the cash to get one. Yeah. Like, you know, if they could, they could just make a a video, a commercial based on my oven and then say, do you want something like this? Okay. You don't get the mosaic, but (laughs) yeah, yeah. I'm not doing this again. This is, this was hundreds of hours. Um, but yeah, it's super functional. And if, if they can figure out a different way to make it look good, I think everybody should have one. Yeah. It is, it is really, really cool. So much more useful than the cob ovens, I think. Huh. All right. Yeah. Uh, anything else about the Love rocket them. oven? Mm-mm, so next, next up is that there are two tickets left to the rocket mass heater jamboree. Uh, which starts October 2nd. And, um, I know, in fact, Julia, isn't your guy coming? Elliot? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Elliot is coming to the event. And I, I know Opalyn has a ticket and she is like, uh, got some, some stuff that's trying to stop her from coming, but, uh, she's probably going to shoot that in the head so she can <laughs> come. <laughs> I, I'm planning on being there and it'll be, um, Beyond my control if I can't, but. So there's two tickets left. Yeah. Uh, we have seven instructors, so there will be seven tracks. Um, we have a, a new cook lined up who's very excited about ferments. And mm. um, I, I got to spend a, a, a half an hour hearing her being giddy about ferments. <laughs> and. And all the things that she wants to make. And I was like, okay, this is, this is gonna be, uh, this is gonna be a lot of food adventure here. Um, I think we're gonna have more than 40 people, something in that range. Wow. Uh, and yeah, two tickets, two tickets left. Did I mention two tickets or not? We have two tickets left. <laughs> so if people wanna come, you gotta get your ticket right away. Um, I'm so jealous of these two people. It's going to be so wonderful. I wish I could have one of them, but I can't. But I wish that I could. I want to hear all about it. Yeah. Now, yeah. Uh, Katie, I think a rocket oven in Hawaii would work really well. It would be so great. Yeah. Yeah. Although oh, yeah. a rocket mass heater would be uh, pointless, I think, in Hawaii. No, no. No. You, you get used to the temperature after a while, and then it gets to be 69, and it's so cold. especially at night because most of the people have all their windows open all the time and so whatever temperature is outside it's that temperature inside which is usually good but then it gets a little chilly at night inside something 69 so you're getting out your fuzzy slippers and your cocoa a rocket mask heater bench would be lovely especially an outdoor one or a sort of covered outdoor 
I don't. I, I say go for the oven. The oven is much more functional. I'm, I'm having <laughs> such a hard time thinking about being cold at 69. So. Oh, you remember is, when I lived in Los Angeles? People all got out their hats and mittens and scarves around Christmas, and it's like you've got to be kidding me. But they wore them. Oh boy! Oh boy! All right. Uh, other news about the Rocket Mass Eater Jamboree. Um, so first of all, we've had a lot of changes to the schedule due to the COVID. We had a bunch of people scheduled to come be instructors from Europe. And uh, is Bulgaria in Europe? I'm not sure. Is, does anybody know? Yeah, it is. It is. is Bulgaria <laughs> is Europe. Okay. Okay. Well, I don't know. Where do they draw that line? My, I, my, I guess my geography. The Soviet is Union is no more, so I'm going to call it Europe. Right, yeah. and wasn't half of the Soviet Union in Europe? So yeah, yeah. All right, all right. So anyway, there were these two guys that were going to come and be instructors from Bulgaria, and their their claim to fame, their their big famous thing was that they have made a rocket mass heater that is sold there. So they have a commercial – actually, I should say they have a commercial rocket heater that they sell. looks very, ooh, la, la, fancy. Um, and it's called the Gamera. And I just got word that, I mean, even though like about a week or two ago, uh, we got word that they cannot come, like like the U.S., like opened up their consulate, I guess it is, and said, okay, we're letting people get visas. And then like a week later, they said, change their mind, fuck off. <laughs> Just go away. <ahead>. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, uh, they can't, they can't come. And, uh, but, uh, it sounds like between magic, between, uh, them and Uncle Mud, uh, they have worked something out to send one to us. Wow. So Yay. We will be installing one of those. And I'm, I'm thinking that we're going to put it in the red cabin. <gasps> nice. Yeah. How cool. I'm looking at it online right now. It's, um, an L shaped, uh, rocket mass heater and it, they've got some really great drawings. I'm excited to learn more about it. So, uh, it's an existing commercial product in, I guess, Europe, wherever Bulgaria is. <laughs> it's in Europe. I looked. It's, okay. All I right. think it's in Europe. It's, it's by Greece. It's yep. in between, it's kind of in between Greece and Turkey. Okay. All right. All right. Didn't Turkey join the European Union? <laughs> they wanted to. It's sort of a partial, there's a different levels of joining, right? Yeah, they are. They're kind of partial. Now they've gone all like dictatory. So. Oh. Well, you oh. said it was Gamera, not Gamera, like for like the Mystery Science Theater 3000. Uh, hell if I know. Yeah, it's like. <laughs> I mean, okay, first of all, I've never seen Mystery Science Theater 3000 or whatever it is. I, I've heard of it. I know that they play a movie and then there's these three shadows. Yeah. In the bottom right corner. And oh, yeah. That's all You're I right. know. The movie, the movie they were reviewing had Gamera in it, but that wasn't related specifically to them. That's a good point. Is Gamera uh, the thing that fights Godzilla? I, it's one of them. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> but this is not Gamera. This is Gamera. 
I don't so it's know. It's spelled like camera, but with a G. Okay. So it could be, it's, 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 yeah, whatever you want. I, I'm not sure if I've ever heard anybody say it to me. It's cool looking. I, okay, you're looking at the pictures of it. Okay. I'm looking at it. Yeah, so it's like a, a, a matte black cylinder with a little firebox attached to it. Yeah. Now, we are getting a liberator delivered by the creator of the liberator, and uh, he's going to install it in the wood shop. So it's kind yeah. of it's, that's a, that's a commercial rocket heater that is available right now in the United States, which, by the way, is not a rocket oven. I, I know because I tied because we was talking about okay. getting rocket ovens, you know, built. But all right. But but the thing is, is it's kind of like so. I guess it's the European equivalent in a way. Um, but all right, so we're going to get it, and uh, and what and another thing is, is that we have lined up more instructors, and I said we've got seven, and um, so we we found uh, Americans that are willing to come and uh, take on a build. All of them have experience building rocket mass heaters. And uh, we're going to see to it that, that there's at least seven builds happening simultaneously at any time. And we've got a list of about 20 different things. But I think we already put out a podcast listing all of this stuff. Okay. Um, now, I just spent a week being sick. And mm. so I feel like I'm behind in everything. And one of the things I've been working on in between working on two books and a bunch of other stuff, um, <clears throat> I've been working on designs for all these rocket mass heaters. And so um, I am going to scramble, scramble, scramble to try to get the designs done before the event begins. But But one of them is shaped up really well. And I feel really solid about that. And that's the one that's going to be going into the solarium, which, by the way, the solarium is coming along really well. Um, it's, it's looking really cool. Um, and, and, uh, I'm, I'm tempted to say there might even be, we, we have not rented out any bunks in the solarium, uh, for the event because the solarium is not done. And I don't want to put the pressure on the boots. Uh, um, which is yet another thing. Um, is that uh, for the boot camp, the BRK for the boots has been uh, augmented by, so there's the money that's been there before, um, but now it's got $2,000 in Bitcoin added to it. Ooh. So um, a, a lot of coin there on the table for people that uh, want to come and, and be in the, uh, in the boot camp right now. And so um, it's it's a uh, I don't know I think it's a pretty exciting time. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> and uh, uh, yeah, we could use more boots. We need more boots. We need more boots in the boot camp. The more boots we have, then the faster the projects go for all the boots. The boots could have more diversity in all the stuff that they work on. Uh, let's see. Um, that's all the news I have. I think we're ready to go into. The Desert of Paradise with you. you. guys got anything else? Right. Let's jump no, in. I'm good. This. I'm good. I gotta get to the farm and clean my oven. Alright. Uh, page 180. So this will be the last 20 pages because it's, it's 200 pages. 
Page 180 is humane slaughter. And so, um, let's see, I gotta, I gotta put on my old man geezer glasses to be able to read this. There's some really cute pictures in the book in the chapter before this of, it kind of looks like Seth Holzer hugging maybe a pony. Yeah. It looks like an Icelandic horse, yeah. Yes, very fuzzy horse. And then like a baby with the grown-ups, right? And they're so cute. Anyway. Uh, Humane slaughter. I believe the human being has always been a hunter and gatherer and has always killed and eaten animals. This still holds true, and I have nothing against it. It's my responsibility to offer the animal the best possible life, though. It should be able to live in a natural environment and to procreate. When I kill an animal, I must make sure that it does not feel stress or fear. Death itself does not hurt. Only the fear of death does. Um, <clears throat> last night, uh, me and, uh, several of the boots got together and, and we watched, um, Alone in the Wilderness. And, mm. uh, they had never seen it before. And so when it got to the very beginning of the show, then Dick Frenicky says, I'm feeling like a trout. And so everything's kind of iced over pretty good and, and snow everywhere, but he's got like a little hole in the ice over in this one spot. And he decides to throw a line in. And as he's, you know, gra- pulling out a fish, I'm, I'm kind of thinking to myself, cause one of the people doing this was Magdalene. You know, she was watching it and she's a vegan. Mm. And, um, I didn't want to interrupt the movie then. And so I let it go and I forgot about it, but I kind of thought, okay, let's suppose that you're there. It's the end of May and everything is pretty well iced over. And they, you've just got this melted point in this creek that's opened up. And uh, so if you're going to live off the land as a vegan and you just arrived, you know, granted, you'll have brought some food with you, but you can only pack so much food with you. So what would you, as a vegan, eat? Anybody got any ideas? Uh, it just, yeah, if you just got there, it has to be food that you brought. There's, there's precious little digging up roots. There's not much. True. I mean, and if you're going to be there for months, I mean, surely within a month, there will be stuff that you can go, that'll, stuff will pop up out of the ground. You can go get it in like a month. So do you, I guess you just got to bring in more food because, as a non-vegan person, yeah, you can catch fish, you can eat fish. And then, of course, there's a lot of game that you could hunt that's active at that moment. So, I don't know, as a, I suppose as a vegan, you could kind of create a cache and then pack up a whole bunch of food and store it there, then go back and bring up a whole bunch more food. You could do that. That, that might work. And then you just have to make this extra True. trip. And the further north you get, the harder it is to be a vegan. Okay. So um, <clears throat> I was recently talking to somebody the other day. Um, I think she said she was a vegan for 11 years. 
and she she had to give it up because there was something that wasn't working for her. And it's been like um, seven or eight years since then, and she still hasn't recovered from this deficiency. I can't remember what she said. I, I think that the, the important thing I want to say is that I applaud people going down the vegan road, but that it isn't for everybody. There's a lot of people that have tried, and they couldn't do it, and um, for medical reasons. And so I this is this leads into the whole thing, like because there's a lot of people that are more of a militant vegan, believing that everybody should be vegan. And I just want to state that no, no, not everybody. I think it's great when people choose that path. It's a wonderful, beautiful, lovely path for an individual choice. But please don't pressure others into it because many have tried and failed. It's it's made them very ill. Um, <clears throat> so I think each person should, should travel the path that makes them the healthiest. So, okay, and I, I think it's important to bring that up as we're talking about humane slaughter. How does modern slaughtering work? Animals are transported over long distances, crowded in confined spaces, and when they arrive at the slaughterhouse, they can smell blood, fear, and death. Never mind hear the screaming of the other animals. Just look them in the eyes, and you know what fear of death is. This is unnecessary and unacceptable. Humane butchering happens locally, where the animal has lived, without the need for transportation. An animal is best killed by the human it feels most close to. Because of the close contact I maintain with my animals, I often have a sense when an animal is ready to die. When the time has come, I call the pig or sheep the same way I always used to, stroke it and talk to it, until it's fully relaxed, then I use a captive bolt pistol to kill it swiftly. The animal will die instantly and not feel any pain. All right, that is all that I have marked from humane slaughter. Does anybody have anything else they want to talk about with humane slaughter? Well, I had an unusual experience in that when I was a first a graduate student, so this is long before I knew anything about permaculture or I don't, before I was even thinking about eating organic food. This is 1988 and my research lab needed living blood cells. And as the brand new grad student, it was my job to go to the abattoir, the, the university, um, slaughterhouse i guess and this is what they were doing is they were training future meat inspectors i believe and so the numbers of animals processed was quite small and the whole thing was perfectly done and so i had to be there they used an electrical thing it looked like what you used to to restart somebody's heart the the pig would let be let into the the area and he'd walk out kind of like oh, what's going on here and then someone would walk up to it put one one of these things on the forehead and one on the side of the head and then press a button and he would just like 
and all his legs would go stiff and he would flop over on his side. He's out cold. And then they would put a chain around the hind foot, haul him up so he's hanging head down and cut the jugulars. And that's when I got to go in there with my tubes to fill the tubes with blood. So I got blood all over my hands. And so these tubes held a few ounces each. They were giant tubes. And either that or I was getting macrophages from the lungs. So I got to watch the instructor get the lungs for me. But it really, I don't know, just it, it put me deeply in touch with where meat comes from, which isn't the normal American experience. So I got to see how it can be done well before I had any of these arguments with anybody about um, vegetarianism or, or veganism. It's, it's quite a difference to go in and um, learn about butchering from somebody who has clearly done it like more than 50 times and yeah. uh, done it, done it well more than 50 mm-hmm. times. Yeah. I think that's an important experience. About a month ago, we had a guy come out to our farm to harvest our hogs. And he took them out with a, a small gauge rifle in their pen. So they're, they're in a, in the forest and he didn't isolate them. He would just choose one and, and take it out. And it was amazing. The other hogs were just kind of like, huh, Henry just fell over. And then we'd go and take the hog and, and, and drag it out of there. And none of them seemed to care at all. Well, I believe, <laughs> let me, let me see if I can help paint the picture, add a couple details. Okay. So, huh, Henry just fell over. I guess that means more food for me. You're right. That is exactly what they thought. Yeah, dumbass Henry. <laughs> Sucker! <laughs> oh man, yeah. yeah. Uh, kind of how they roll with that. Pigs are not sentimental. <laughs> so, <clears throat> the next chapter is no survival for humanity without bees. Practical advice for beekeepers. This is kind of a fascinating thing. Uh, a herb bed in front of the hive soaks the bees' wings with disinfecting essential oils, a protection against mites and other diseases. The sloping piece of wood in front of the entrance to the hive forces the bees to fly through the herbs. Now, that is a magical septip. I, uh, I kind of, I kind of feel like these little tips like this are the things that I enjoy most about, about Sep's stuff. Um, which by the way, I think this is a great time to say, Hey everybody, go buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> if you can find it. Well, we'll it. I, I think the Kindle version is available. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes. And the yep, Kindle version has the this picture of the beehive with the herb garden. Oh, good. Oh yeah, you have the Kindle yeah. version. That's Wonderful. true. So page one eighty three, you can see the the picture that goes with what I just read. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's like one of those traditional skeps, right? Straw. It it in looks circles. like that. 
<laughs> yeah, but he he does a lot of very interesting uh, uh, beehive designs, bee colony, no, beehive designs. Uh, bees produce a resin called propolis that they use to fill up cracks and thus protect their hives from drafts. Propolis is well known for its healing properties. Many beekeepers neglect one important factor. Propolis not only helps to keep the hive warm, it also changes the composition of the air in the hive. Propolis strengthens the immune system of the bees and keeps the air in the hive clean, thereby protecting them from mites and other diseases. Beekeepers forget this, and by opening the hive, they disturb the fine balance within it. The bees consequently get stressed and, as a result, are prone to disease. In nature... Bees do all the work by themselves. They sweat wax and use it to build the combs that create the right ambiance for them to work and live in. This keeps them fit and healthy. They also depend on the antibacterial components contained in the wax. Many industrial beekeepers want their bees to focus on production of honey only, and remove a lot of these various jobs the bees do in their hive. This is wrong and creates short-lived success as it harms the bees and honey production soon decreases. It is wrong to insert frames made of plastic or metal in the hive as these materials do not breathe and are not antibacterial. This leads to mold in the hives, especially in humid regions. To avoid mold, beekeepers cut slots in the hive ceiling to increase ventilation. But this increases draft and a drop in temperature that is very harmful to the bees. The bees close the openings and the beekeeper scratches them open again. Human and animal are working against each other, not together. It is only a question of time before the bees start suffering, and eventually they will be weakened to such an extent that the hive collapses. So I prefer that they say the colony collapses. All right. Anybody else have anything that they want to say about Sepulcher's approach to bee stuff? He has a picture of the log, the natural log hive, and I'm wondering if how you would withdraw any honey from that while not disrupting that internal environment. Well, it looks like a lot of the honey has already been withdrawn where you would just take out entire combs. Um, and this is, this is an interesting type that he has here. Um, it looks like, it looks like it has, like it's a, it's a hollowed out log on its side and it has like some sort of corrugated metal on the top. 
and some sort of spray and insulation, maybe? Yeah, it looks like that good stuff. Yeah, great stuff. <laughs> it's not that good stuff. <laughs> yeah. Good stuff. It's that horrible stuff. So I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, I'm not too excited about the one that we're looking at there, but but I don't yeah, know. I'm trying, to, trying like... to keep the wood from getting wet, you know, and, and rotting so it stays around longer. But I kind of wonder if the colony has left this hive and they're just taking all the wax out to get the honey. I'm just looking. Yeah, I don't see any bees. It's just, yeah. yeah. And then there's that comb on the bottom that looks like it fell off. Yeah. Okay. Chapter six, the last chapter, conclusion, restoring paradise. I was going to say, I I missed my chance. Is it too late to say? No, no, go. Um, one of the things in his bullet point list is toxic plants and herbs need to be available. Bees use these to make healing honey. And you've said that, and he said that I think before for livestock, but it's interesting. I didn't think of it as in terms of bees as well. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure if they would have cells of honey that they would like intentionally keep different. And it's like, oh, this is this is the honey that's you know we got from the nectar of of that plant, which is rather medicinal. But it's possible that they might have like several cells of honey inside the hive that are going to have medicinal qualities to it because it was harvested from those plants. And then they'll they're going to be like, uh, oh, we got 20 different varieties of honey stored up. Which one do we want to have today? And it's like those those ones don't seem as tasty, but then maybe a month later they seem tasty because you know it has a medicinal quality that they need at the time. I, I don't know. I'm, I am I am seriously making this shit up. <laughs> you have a great imagination. Okay, it seems entirely plausible. I mean, if you if you were a human and in a bee body, you'd be like, hmm, that's this is the clover honey and this is the honey we got from the cherry trees and this is, you know, the, the toxic healing plant honey. Yeah. yeah. What are we having for dinner tonight? It's the well, cherry tree honey. Honey oh. again? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's not just honey again. It's the dan- Tonight it's dandelion honey, you know? Ah, Which, by the way, a couple years ago a local, the Westner brothers, so Jacob Westner was here and he brought me a jar of honey up in his permaculture stuff. And he said, this is, this is dandelion honey. And that, that has, I've tried a lot of honey in my day, and that was the best. That was the best oh. honey I've ever had, dandelion honey. Okay. <clears throat> Conclusion. Restoring paradise. All beings living together harmoniously means paradise to me. It's my responsibility as a human being to restore and protect this paradise. In order to do this, I need to experience it, and I need to be open to it. I am in paradise when I am part of the whole. Paradise exists within me when I understand I am part of nature. And when I feel and experience this unbelievable and incredible diversity of life, this begins in the smallest of ways. 
when I hold a handful of soil, seeing it, smelling it, feeling it, and the knowledge that I hold billions of the smallest living beings in my hand. And when I'm able to appreciate the countless interactions all within my hand, then I am in paradise. Watching the plants at my feet, mosses, barely visible plants, flowers, the life of insects depends on these. Bees, dragonflies, mosquitoes. Watching the wider surroundings, vegetation, landscape, the sheer unbelievable amount of interactions, symbioses, relationships. I need to feel nature, see nature, tune in to nature, communicate with nature. And then I experience paradise. A garden is paradise. Comprehending the multitude of lives in it is paradise. It is an apothecary for each household. It is so much more than the sum of its plants, but I need to be aware of that. This is so crucial. The openness to experience, to communicate, and to co-create with nature, with mutual respect for each other. Everything is part of this. Fragrances, flowers, fruit, the symbiosis and cycles of human life, forests, water, earth, and landscape. Sun and rain, snow and wind are part of it. I can feel them. I can communicate with them and experience life in all its forms. This is paradise. Emotions are important. When I am connected to my surroundings, I can feel the spirit of the animals and plants. When I connect with the soul of all things, I sense what plants or animals need. Given time, everyone can learn to do this and experience the miracle of life. Everyone can realize that we are not separate from nature, but that we are part of it. This enables me to learn everything there is to me. I can communicate with animals. I know whether they are happy or not. Their body language, facial expressions, their smell tells me how they are. The heart must be at the center, enclosed by the soul, led by spirit. Paradise is within us, in our heart, soul, and spirit. The heart must be at the center and closed by the soul, led by the spirit. Only living in the knowledge that I am part of all things gives me paradise. There is no separation. This is nature's mandate to us. Paradise is in our heart, souls, and spirits. Our intuition leads us to knowledge to have the experiences we need in order to become whole. When you have the intuition to do something, just do it. That is why we have intuition. When we are happy, we help others be happy. 
When we experience joy, we pass it on. We share it. We're not isolated. Paradise is so easy. We all give. We all take. Nature, plants, humans, animals. It is offered to us at all times. Accept it. This is life's purpose. It keeps us healthy and powerful. It gives us a sense of well-being. All right. So, and of course, there's beautiful pictures. Go buy the book. And I am looking at, there's a lot of, he starts going into a lot of political stuff. He does. He does pages and pages of political stuff. Yes. He kind of goes the European some, Union. He kind of goes into some woo-woo stuff, too. Here's, there's a section here, challenge politicians. Then he's okay. got become rebel farmers. The European Union has made it worse. Okay. So, yeah. Oh, he here's, says, here's. Okay. Go ahead. He says, corruption and misgovernment have become the norm, and they will inevitably lead to the collapse of the whole system. Woo. Mm-hmm. That's, that's kind of predictive. Yeah. yeah. Children, educate your parents. <laughs> yes. Actually, this has a line I want to share. Okay. Because he says, uh, we humans try to remove all possible danger from our kids. We do everything for them, and they grow up isolated from life. And it just reminds me of when we when we first moved to Portland. My kids were in second grade and fifth grade, and I got a used trampoline on Craigslist for, for 40 bucks. And it's the giant trampoline because we had a big yard. And I'm like, well, let's enjoy this. So it's 17 feet in diameter, yep. but it was really old. Like the original users have gone to college. And I, I brought it to the house. I set it up. It had no safety equipment. It didn't have like the plastic cover to cover the springs. It didn't have the little walls. It was just a trampoline. And I was like, kids, this is a trampoline. It's dangerous. I have one rule. One kid at a time. Because what the only time I've seen serious injuries from trampolines is when there's multiple kids and then a big kid lands on a little kid. Okay. All right. You can point at the stuff around the edges. See the stuff at the edges? All that stuff is called an IQ test. <laughs> yeah. I, exactly. I, I am curious what your IQ is, and this device will help me to learn. Yeah. I mean, I do have – I had two girls because I do think that, that young boys, when the, when the testosterone really starts surging, can do some very dumb things. Um, dumb things about according it. to a pediatrician. <laughs> yeah, you know, like I think, like attempting massive jumps. Look at this. Yeah, and then, you know, wow. ending up falling off the tam- trampoline. Sure. Yeah. That's, yeah. No. How else? There is no other way. When you're a boy. Right. Yeah. I, mean, you, I think you, part of being a boy is seven times a day you got to get into a good fist fight or wrestling match. Something like that. It's that's, true. That's how you got to do it as a boy. You know, and it's like, uh, so, but if you try to raise your boys like girls, then of course, you know, no, 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 you should never fight. (laughs) (laughs) You should never be a boy. (laughs) Let's get you a dress and some pigtails. Oh, God. No, no, boys, you got it. You got to get in there and, and you teach them things like, 
when you hit somebody, keep your thumbs out of your fist. See, that's good advice for a boy. <laughs> I would promote. Keep your elbows in. Elbows in. <laughs> yeah. I would promote that advice for all gender and that all the wrestling fun stuff can be for anybody who has that kind of energy level. It, yes, it is. But there, there is a gender difference, though. There really is. Because boys will have a fight, and then one of them wins and one of them loses, and then the fight's over, and they could be friends. And if girls have a fight, it doesn't go like that. <laughs> I remember something Garrison Keeler once said. Something about... Uh, men are not prepared for relationships. <laughs> it's women. <laughs> because women, for all of their childhood, they have, they have gone through 10,000 different possible scenarios of argument. And, and have mastered them all. So it's like they've been doing argument kung fu training for 18 years. And then, Boys who've been out there punching the crap out of each other <laughs> for the 18 years are now confronted with the scenario of an argument and with somebody who is a ninja master. And it's like, you're going to lose, buddy. <laughs> you're, you're not playing on your, where you've been training. This is not your dojo. <laughs> I think it's changing. I think it's changing over time. I think we're giving boys more um emotional uh training these some of the times these days and i i hope i do hope it's training as well but i think it is and i think people are going to be allowed to be the full possibility that they had i, I hope but i see more of it well yeah. i uh i i know that when i was a boy that yeah the wrestling matches and the um, fighting, um, many times a day, every day. That's uh, it, just, yeah. it's just how it had to be. Um, and then, and then sort of near instant forgiveness. That's the part that's foreign to females. I'm not sure I would call it forgiveness. Oh, um, right. It's forgiveness. more like a tolerated grudge. All right. <laughs> <laughs> you also come to an understanding, you know, particularly depending on how badly you were beaten. And whether or not there are new stacks from your opponent. <laughs> um, all right, all right. Setting all of that aside, which is important stuff, but uh, not not necessarily on topic. I do have uh, some stuff from the last page I want to read. You guys have anything from before the last page that you would like to mention? Okay. Nope. There is a lot of inspiration and enthusiasm around us in the world. But that is not enough. Skill, knowledge, and experience are also needed. It takes more than a weekend or a year to acquire this. It is a lifelong process. People come together. They teach each other. They learn from each other. And they become gardeners of the earth. This could be a new profession because skilled people are needed everywhere, worldwide, in all climates. To heal the earth, we need these people to travel the world, to give expert advice to communities and initiatives and to whoever 
is willing to listen. Mm. Closing words. What do we need to save the earth? We need farmers as teachers with practical knowledge to educate the rest of the world and to teach respect and cooperation with nature and all creation. Theorists and narrow-minded fanatical activists often do more harm than good as they actually play into the hands of greedy industry. A self-reliant, independent, small-structured farming community is our best guarantee for holistic, natural agriculture. It creates opportunities for people from cities to visit and learn about nature. Educational farmsteads can convey traditional farming knowledge. A farming university can teach traditional and new methods of natural agriculture. Only humility and respect towards nature will enable us to restore paradise. The end. All right. It's a good book. I I think so too. I mean, I think that it's uh, very high ratings that we've seen wherever their ratings are provided are, are well worth it. It's it's got a lot of profound stuff. Um, I'm I'm very glad to have read it. I feel like a richer person. All right. I think I think that's it. I think we're all done. Has anybody got any other things to add to this podcast? Nope. If you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at trimmings.com. We talk about this lovely book, Desert of Paradise, Homesteading and Permaculture. All the time. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash paulwheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.